I'll begin this morning with a verse from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 21. As you're turning there, I'll say this. This message today has been stirring in my heart and mind for a long time and has taken a, a different turn than I anticipated. And that's why I wasn't here for Sunday school. I didn't hardly sleep last night. I was up late and got up early and I'm very burdened about it. And it will be different than any message I've ever tried to preach in, in um, style. So, I want you to pray for me, and I want your minds to be open, and when I start in the beginning, if your mind starts wandering, pray for you to pay attention and for me to focus, and uh, above all, pray that the Holy Spirit will have His way. It's going to be really interesting. I'm excited to try to preach this message, and I need the Lord's help. First, let's read Luke chapter 4. Verse 14, Jesus has just been tempted by the enemy, by Satan, by his own personal thorn in the flesh uh, for 40 days, and he has withstood through the power of God. And the 14th verse, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up in order to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister or the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all them in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for who you are, for enduring what you did, that we might have liberty and freedom. Thank you for withstanding the attacks of Satan, being empowered by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and ministering in a way as an example to us, and in healing and in love, and in mercy, and everything that you are. And so today, Lord, let this message be a picture and a reflection of you. Come with your Holy Spirit. Overwhelm this place. Anoint me. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'll get back to that. I'm going to tell you a story. It's about an ocean. This ocean's like every other ocean. It's full of mysterious creatures and fascinating things. Full of energy and life. And death. This ocean is its own world. There's an entire world beneath the surface that the surface dwellers cannot understand. We could talk about the ocean and everything in it, and all the creatures and the different levels and how far down you go. But today I want to talk to you about the surface dwellers because they're like us. These are the people who stay mostly on the surface of the ocean. Every now and then they swim down a little bit. But they can't survive beneath the ocean's surface for long because they weren't made for the ocean. 
They were made for another world, a world without water, nothing but stable land. And one day they're going to go to this world that's been prepared for them. And these surface dwellers are never fully comfortable in the ocean because there's always a threat of drowning. And the only people who aren't afraid are those who have found their homes on ships which have anchors that go all the way down to the bedrock of the ocean floor. No one in this ocean world has ever been to the bottom of the ocean. They don't really know what's down there, but they've heard stories. And there are sacred writings that talk about the world beneath the surface and about the foundation of the sea. And these stories say that there's a rock at the bottom of the sea and that this rock is alive. They say that the anchor is alive too. And the chain on the anchor going all the way up, that it's also alive. Like an idea or an emotion or an experience that you never forget. The kind of experience that's more real even than your life. The stories say that the world was made by a person who intended people to live stable, happy, healthy lives on the foundation of the world. The sacred writings talk about the beginning. They call it creation. And they tell of two people who were made in the image of the person who made the world. And the only thing these two people had to do was keep one rule. And when they broke that one rule, so the stories say, the world was flooded. And yet even now there are stories about the old world before the new world to come. They say that the oceans are part of the curse brought down on the world by the first two people. And the stories say that beneath the ocean is the world God intended. These stories say that the person who made the world became a man and lived like the surface dwellers on top of the ocean. He experienced life as a surface dweller and he went on all the boats and swam with all the people and knew better than any man in history what it meant to be a surface dweller. The stories say that the man had to drown to lift the curse. When he drowned, he traveled to the very deepest depths of the sea and saw what was there as well. The stories say that the man came back to life after being buried under the water three days in the depths of the sea. And these stories also say that the man invented bedrock boats that he left to the surface dwellers. And the stories also say, though most surface dwellers can't imagine how this is possible, that the man himself actually transformed into the living rock at the bottom of the ocean and that he gives life to the anchors that anchor these bedrock boats on the surface of the sea. And that these boats can dwell in safety no matter what the storm is like, no matter how big the waves are, because of this living anchor anchored in the living bedrock that keeps them safe. On the surface of this ocean, there's all types of people, many different types of boats. There's people just like the people in our world, loud and smelly and quiet and kind and smart and nervous and loving and boring and sad and funny and diligent and open-minded and afraid. There's all types of surface dwellers there. And there are also many different types of ships. Oh, there's barges and tankers and container ships. And even ship shipping ships. 
I saw in this world a ship, shipping, ship, shipping, shipping ships. And that'll make sense in a little while. Right now you can laugh. It sounds funny, doesn't it? But they have those. There's also not only the work type ships, but there's party ships, like cruise ships. And on these, there's a seemingly never-ending supply of food and drinks and dessert. Everybody's happy all the time. There's great music. There's never-ending food and fun. But everyone's having such a good time, nobody asks where the food comes from. What will happen when it runs out? There's also yachts on the surface of this ocean. And on these, there's uh, people of affluence and nice suits and expensive cigars and beautiful women hanging off the sides of these yachts. Some of them have celebrities on them. They're very beautiful, appealing boats. There's big fancy speedboats. These have the most popular loud music blaring, like wakeboarding boats. I don't know if you've seen those on, the, on our lakes. It amazes me how loud those speakers can be, how noisy they are, how fun they are. They have flashy lights. They have lots of excitement on these fancy speedboats as well. And they're so fast, they zip in and out of the waves, and whenever there's trouble, they think they can outrun it. There's rafts that people lash together with whatever they can find. And they live on those rafts, and some of them believe that they're better for it. That they're more pleasing than the ones on speedboats and yachts and party ships. They're sailboats. People who get in, put up the sail, and go wherever the wind takes them. And then there are what I already mentioned, bedrock boats. And the big difference about these, they don't look special. They're not... Uh, necessarily exciting. When you look at them, you might not even recognize that there's anything different about them because the most important thing about these bedrock boats is what's underneath the surface of the sea where nobody can see. That is the living anchor we talked about. And the residents of these bedrock boats don't understand the mechanics of exactly how this anchor works. They don't understand how an anchor can be grounded in the rock and keep the ship completely safe and stable while still allowing the ship to move freely about through the ocean. And though they don't understand, they know it's true because they've experienced it. They've weathered the storms of this surface world and they've survived while other people have drowned. They've experienced that the anchor is real and there's nothing anybody can do to convince them that it's not The age that this world is in, many of the bedrock boats have forgotten why they were made. The one who made the living anchor and became the living rock created them to be in the middle of the storms, to rescue all the drowning people. And many of these bedrock boats have driven off to the edge of the sea in a safe harbor where there's no storms. Some of them are so confused that when a ship shipping ship comes by, they cut their anchor and load on board because they think surely something that big would be more stable. If we could just compile our resources into one place, they say. And so they hop on with other bedrock boats onto this ship shipping ship and let it take them where? It wants to. 
There aren't as many bedrock boats as there used to be. Many people have jumped overboard and boarded speedboats and yachts and party boats. They've tried to turn these kinds of boats into bedrock boats, but they don't understand the world beneath the surface. They don't know that they jump from boats with anchors to ones without any anchor at all. Other bedrock boats, as I've said, have migrated from the middle of the sea where the big waves are are to shallow waters and little harbors away from the storms of this ocean world. They park their bedrock boats in safe, quiet, shallow water, and they talk back and forth from boat to boat every summer. Some of these bedrock boats have an event, and people from the other bedrock boats travel to the event, and in the event they sometimes eat good food, and they talk a lot about the good old days, and they sing songs their grandparents sang on their bedrock boats. They talk about how it used to be when all the drowning people couldn't wait to climb aboard. And they bemoan and bewail and complain that nobody's interested anymore. Nobody cares about bedrock boats. In these events, they hire speakers to speak about the sacred stories, and they often also shout to the empty ocean about how wonderful life can be aboard the bedrock boats, but there are very few drowning people where these boats are. There's hardly anybody swimming in the safe waters where the bedrock boats have chosen to retire. Oh, they listen to the speakers tell stories and sing songs and reminisce. They talk about what it used to be like when drowning people were rescued all the time. There are different kinds of people on these bedrock boats, but there are really two main categories. There's a category of people who wants to reminisce about the old sea world, and there's a group of people who want to rescue drowning men. Some of these people in the second group are so serious about rescuing drowning men They can't get the bedrock boats to move out of their lazy safe harbors and so they dive off themselves and swim out into the deep. They go up to one person at a time saying, would you like to be rescued? Sometimes they have to spend hours or days or weeks or months talking to one drowning person, holding them up until they can listen before they can trust them enough to be carried back to this bedrock boat. And because the bedrock boat is parked in a calm harbor, it's so far away that it makes it even harder to drag the drowning in to safety. I guess that's the closest thing to a parable God's ever put on my heart. I hope the story makes some sense. But in case it doesn't, I'll tell you, the ocean, the sea, represents the curse of the world under sin. These bedrock boats are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other boats are all other forms of self-reliance and self-religion. The people in the sea are the people of the world, and they cannot survive long without boarding a boat. All boats will be destroyed in the end, except the bedrock boats. And all the drowning people are sinners.
Excuse me. I'm more burdened than I've ever been about the people around us who are drowning. And how we reach them. And what they need. What will help them realize that we have the truth. So there's a problem. These bedrock boats, which as I said represent the Lord's churches, there's a tendency... God has given us a, a bright light that we're supposed to shine. Some of us are scared, so we cover it up. We go hide behind some fog. We pretend we're not even there. We have our nice little parties. I had a fellow preacher email me just yesterday. He listened to the um, millennial sermon that I tried to preach. And... He said, our church is doing really well. People are joining and being saved and being baptized. He said, I don't want to be satisfied with this little oasis God has given us. I want to reach dying people. That's how I feel this morning. How do you reach drowning people? Talk about some ways you don't do it first. Actually, let, let, me, tell, let me tell you. Another little story. Some of you already heard maybe bits and pieces of this. Some of you were there. We were in Florida uh, this past week. We ate a lot of good food, as Brother Ben already said. We went to this one restaurant where I told the waitress to order me whatever she thought I wanted. And instead of bringing me a nice fillet of fish like I expected, she brought me a big old porterhouse steak and grilled crab legs, and a baked potato, and a nice salad, and we ate cheesecake for dessert, plenty of coffee. And I was so full. <laughs> and then Alex, who is this uh, hyper, never-ending energy, energetic 24-year-old, was like, hey guys, when we get back to the, the house, let's have a race out to the sandbar. We're going to get the jacuzzi, we'll jump out, we'll run down the shore, and we'll swim out in the dark and see who can get to the sandbar first. And we're all like, we're too old for that. <laughs> and I said, I'm not getting in a jacuzzi. That's gross. <laughs> so he said, okay, okay, we'll just start at the edge of the fence and run. Now, y'all may know, I, I, I have a very competitive spirit that has been squelched a lot. And I know that uh, Alex is a good swimmer and Ben's a good swimmer, and I knew I couldn't outrun him in the water. So we took off running. I ran everybody on the land, even this tall, lanky, young fellow, all of them. Got to the water first. I take off swimming, and I realize I can't breathe. Usually, when I run like that, I can bend over and grab my knees for a minute, catch my breath. Here's the part y'all don't know. I realized in a minute I would be in trouble. And at that moment, I still had enough wherewithal, enough clarity that I could have yelled for help. But I didn't want to. Too much pride. Yeah, I didn't want them to make fun of me later. That's, that's what we did the whole trip, make fun of each other <laughs> in a good way. And I saw, I saw Ben and Alex had gotten to the sandbar 
and I realized I was coming as close as I've ever been to drowning. Everything in my body shut off, except one thought. I have to get there. And they had no idea. They were like a beacon of light. All I could think was I need to get there where they are. See, And in that moment, when uh, my brain no longer had enough oxygen to think clearly, it would have done me no good for somebody to try to reason with me. Logic wouldn't have helped. Somehow, I made it over there to the sandbar, which was about waist deep with water, and I just put my arm around my brother Daniel and around Chad, and uh, they held me up. And for the next, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, uh, I guess I kept almost passing out from maybe not enough oxygen. And Alex kept being like, hey, hey, Josh, Josh, Josh. (laughs) And the whole time, my little brother there held me up. And then they would say, are you okay? And I would say, just keep an eye on me. (laughs) Because I wasn't okay. Finally, we swam back to the shore, and it was all dark by then, and one of them swam on one side of me, one on the other, and one behind me, and we swam back in, and I kept saying I was okay, but I guess I wasn't. I don't know how I looked, but when I finally realized I was sort of okay, Ben, the former policeman, gave me a sobriety test. (laughs) And I really wasn't okay for a long time. God used that to show me what it's like for lost people to live in this world. Here's how you don't reach drowning men. Debate. Oh, you'll win the debate, but they'll drown. You don't use academic logic. They don't have enough oxygen in their brains to process it. You don't appeal to the sentimental or talk about the good old days. They don't care about when their granddaddy almost drowned. They're about to drown. They want to know how they can be rescued right then. You don't try to force a new culture upon them if they're drowning. Listen, religious people, especially members of this denomination we're affiliated with, are floating around this world on lifeboats built by prior generations and are comfortable but not interested in moving to a bigger boat that can actually save people. And just like that story I told you, we want to go park over in a safe area somewhere and argue about whether the boat should be made out of wood or fiberglass or metal and whether we should have vinyl seats or if that's too modern and what kind of songs we should sing and what we should do while we're sitting over there safe. The world's full of drowning people. And if we aren't careful, we might have a tendency to shout words of encouragement and false hope and exciting things when what they really need is to be rescued. And how you rescue somebody who's drowning is you pick them up. And you stand there with them until they're safe enough to hear you. I'm tired of shouting at drowning people. That's what religion's been doing for too long. These angry street corner preachers are a good example of that. It does not help to go to a place where people are drowning and yell at them angrily, you're drowning, you're going to die. They already know. 
They know there's something empty inside. They know there's something wrong. They know there's something off. They have a fear of the world to come. And what they need is people and a, a boat of safety, one of these bedrock ships I'm talking about, to come along and be there among them until they trust them enough to come aboard. Instead, we have in this religion that we're part of, these people on these lifeboats who are more afraid of the raft being upended, they don't realize that the living anchor holds the raft through every storm no matter what. Because it's not the boat, it's the people on board have these living anchors going all the way down to the bedrock and the more of them that there are, I had this image thinking of that story. It's like all of us with these living acres get on this boat, which is the Lord's congregation, and if we have unity and harmony, all the living anchors build into one and go straight down to the bottom bedrock and keep us stable and safe. And the more living anchors we add, the better it is. Now here's the problem. People with their sentimental traditions and their pride and their favorite person and their personality contest and all this different stuff drop anchors in places they don't need to be and keep the boat from moving. It's not just the uh, crash of these two cultures of people that I've mentioned. I mean, that's present. But it's also individuals in the church who put down their anchors where they're not supposed to. And really the extreme of this is people who feel like, well, if I can just get my kids and grandkids on board, that'd be enough. These boats are full of old women who reminisce about the good old days. Old men filled with regret. They won't pull up their anchors and let the people move forward who want to do something. And so the boat sits in the harbor, not saving anybody, not rescuing the drowning, complaining there are no drowning people nearby. I'm going to stop talking about metaphors for a minute and talk to the Lord's people, to this congregation, but also maybe to other people who are parts of other congregations. God has given us sermons over and over in recent times that, that re-ask the question, what do you want? And I want us to consider that today, individually and as a congregation. What do you want? Do you want to sit in a safe harbor on a boat and be happy all the time and not be threatened? Or do you want to go save drowning people? I'm not suggesting an answer. It's a question for you to answer. I'll tell you how I feel. If I can't find a boat that goes to rescue drowning people soon, I'm just going to swim out on my own and, drown, and, and try to save a few. And that's how a lot of people in my generation feel. We're tired of arguing about traditions. We're Listen, if there's a main problem with our denomination, it's that we're answering questions nobody's asking. Nobody cares about church letters. Nobody cares about if baptism's by immersion or not. I'm not saying that's not important. I'm saying they're drowning. They want to be rescued. We can address that other stuff later. What they need is somebody to lend a hand. Hold them up until they can hear. And we can get all the Baptist doctrine right after that. 
what people see instead is these boats parked over there having arguments and disagreements and saying, I don't want to be part of that. So, to, to this church, to you listening, I'm, I'm curious, and you can't answer right now. I don't want you to. You need to think about it, because this is a hard question. Are you ready to be poured out for the Lord's work? Do you want that? Or do you want to stay retired? It's a hard question. It's a hard question I've confronted in my own self. There's a high cost for this kind of dedication. But there's a reward unlike any other. And the reward may not look like uh, tons of people come in, a big old building. But I, I want to tell you this. I believe this with all my heart. And this will be another message for another time. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He told individual people that, sinners, drowning people, that when you are rescued, you will have abundant life. We also have this picture of Jesus loving his church like a good man loves his wife. And if he wants individual drowning sinners to have abundant life, how much more does he want his congregation, his bride, his ecclesia to have abundant life within it? And Answer this for yourselves. When you go around and visit places and go to revivals and these you know, events that are over in the safe harbor corner, do you see abundant life? I usually see sentimentalism. People squabbling about endless genealogies and doctrines of man. Can you believe we're still debating whether this book is the only book we should preach from? This translation, can you, can, I can't even comprehend that. And I realize that's not an issue in this immediate congregation, but it's an issue among the people who are supposed to be bedrock boats that we're supposed to be working with. Nobody cares. When I said we're answering questions nobody's asking, that's one of them. We have people who can barely read regular English and we're demanding they read something from the 1600s that was so Latinized that it was more like English from the 1500s. Why? So, I ask this again, what's, what do we want? What's the point? What do we want to do with this bedrock boat God has given us? I want to tell you a couple things. I don't, I don't even know how long I've been going. Or <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let me tell you this. These drowning people in this story I told you, this sea, let me tell you what some of them are like. I'm going to read you. I was thinking about this the other day and the Lord showed me. This this will be heavy, and uh, I'm going to try to be careful how I say it for the sake of the young people here. I, I, I said to myself, the Lord, I guess, said to me, before I read this, i got to tell you, you all know I went on like a, a Solomon religious expedition for about a month. I went to several different kinds of churches. I went to this big old mega church, the, the biggest church around here. And what really surprised me about that place, they had the concert level lights, they had the smoke with lights reflect off of, they had a professional praise band, they had free coffee, they had ushers everywhere. I think six people ushered me to my seat. They were very friendly, very welcoming, very nice. I got offered a job my first day there. You know what struck me about that place? The preacher preached about sin. He preached about what happens when sin enslaves you. 
He preached about secret sins and how it turns into enslaving sin. He preached against homosexuality. He preached against sex before marriage. He preached against pride in the workplace and greed. He preached against drinking and smoking. In a building with 3,000 people. And he got to the end of his message and he said, Right now, some of you feel like I don't like you. Some of you have never been told that these things I identified are sin. Now you know, now you're responsible. And the feeling that you feel that makes you feel like I don't like you, that's called conviction, and it's the Holy Spirit of God showing you you need to repent. So our little bedrock boats are parked over here in a cove somewhere saying, oh, those people are all wrong. (laughs) He preached a message that could have been preached at any one of our churches. We could have preached it better with power. It wouldn't have been more polished. It wouldn't have been uh, better put together. He had every cue right. Every um, stage prop was planned perfectly. It was wonderful. But what I saw in that place, those people weren't there for the free coffee. They weren't there for the concert level music. They weren't there for the excitement. They were there because they're drowning and they want to know how to survive. It's different than it used to be. I went to mega churches in college and it wasn't like that. People are sick of phony religion and they're, and they're starting to realize, I need to, you know what they're interested in? How do I get my son off meth? How do I get my wife to come back? How do I survive in this job I hate where I want to die every day? They don't care about what translation of the Bible, whether we sing convention classics from the 50s, whether there's a church covenant on the wall or an altar. They don't, care, they don't even know what that stuff is talking about. So here's what I wrote. Somewhere between orthodoxy, this is the conclusion God showed me. We're right. I'm more convinced than ever that we're right. But I'm also more convinced than ever that we're missing something. Somewhere between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, if you don't know those words, orthodoxy is right believing, orthopraxy is right doing. Somewhere between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, there's a disconnect in the church. You think about an orthodontist. They rightly align your teeth. You don't need to go to an orthodontist for years only to sit there and never chew food again or never smile a big, beautiful smile again. The purpose of an orthodontist is to fix your teeth so you can use them. Right? The purpose of orthodoxy is to produce orthopraxy. The reason we believe the right things is to produce the right things, and if we're not, there's something wrong. Orthopedist, same thing. You don't spend years going through physical therapy or, or getting your bones aligned and all this or going to a chiropractor to just go sit in your chair and watch TV all day. You do that so you can move. The whole point of right alignment is to promote proper use and activity. Orthodoxy must produce orthopraxy. And if it doesn't, logic, conscience, the entire history of the human religion and spiritual experience demands that we reconsider and examine whether we're really as right as we think we are. The Bible says, examine yourselves and see if you're in the faith. And so, this is what I want to ask you all. It's a hard question. Do our practices, customs, and expectations really align with Scripture as much as we suppose? Are our traditions really spiritual? Is there any such thing as a timeless, perfect culture? That's what our churches are promoting. They're promoting a culture that worked in the 40s and 50s to reach people. It's a religious culture. 
the songs we sing, the pattern of service, the handshakes, the things we do. It's a religious culture that is very different than churches were 200 years ago, very different than they were in the first century. I'm not suggesting it's wrong. I'm just saying this. Is there any such thing as a perfect culture? Should we be promoting a culture or should we be shining a light on drowning people so they know we're there so when they're ready they could reach out and be rescued? One extreme says you should live as sinners so that they might never feel judged and eventually if you're nice enough to them they will want to be more like you and make a decision for Christ. And in this extreme almost every doctrinal and moral issue is a gray area. This is why people in my generation don't identify sin anymore. That's why they went to that church and were told all these things and sincerely they never heard it was sin. They didn't know. But if we subscribe to this extreme, we may end up believing that the end justifies the means. And the extreme of this ideological position can become any action or activity is right in the right context. In other words, I can do whatever it takes to make somebody feel like I really like them so I can reach them. But there are things that are wrong, period. There's absolute morality and there are things you should never do as a child of God, no matter what the culture says. The Nazi regime under Hitler is an example of the extreme ideology carried to its logical conclusion. Let me give you another example from now, and I'm going to go as quick as I can. This is one of the greatest burdens I have with our culture. This is a more contemporary example of the way people are affected by extreme ideology and also the type of drowning people that we've got to try to reach. A young woman or teenage girl has been taught her whole life in this culture that her worth and her value as a woman is based on how much attention she gets from men. The magazines and grocery store lines, young adult works of fiction, sitcoms, movies, commercials, billboards, makeup and hair products, Facebook, Instagram, music, Snapchat, and almost every other media influence scream at her constantly that she's not good enough. Constantly. School science courses teach survival of the fittest. Social sciences base their theories on the false premise that everyone is motivated by a will to power. They're not. Drowning people just want to survive rather than a will to meaning. And perhaps worst of all, their peers who are over-sexualized, hormone-crazed, and whose views of romantic relationships are based more on the porn industry rather than a stable family experience. Their peers reinforce this perverse view that young woman's value is based on how willing she is to be objectified, give up part of herself for his attention. These are the drowning people we have to try to reach. I could go on with that example. Let me give you one more example. Same kind of drowning people are a bunch of young boys who've been convinced their whole life that if they try to be men, they're selfish, bigoted, critical, arrogant. These are the people we have to try to reach. And so, for example, these young women go through life mistaking selfish, lustful attention for love. And they, although initially it troubles them to their very soul, give up parts of themselves to selfish boys in men's bodies, hoping to have love and ending up with broken emptiness that they numb by repeating the cycle. These are the drowning people we have to try to reach. And they don't care what kind of songs we sing. They just want to be rescued. There's a lot more. I don't need to try your patience. Um, Let me say this. I'm burdened. I'm not mad. I'm burdened. I'm not discouraged. 
I'm burdened. I'm not upset at y'all. That's what God showed me as I was traveling around to different churches. This is the best little congregation of people I've ever seen. I'm convinced of that more than I ever have been. But I want to tell y'all what will happen. This is not a threat. It's just a statement of reality. God gives seasons of life. We've been in a season where we've been in a safe harbor and preparing to go out back into the sea and be ready to help drowning people. If we stay in the safe harbor too long, we're going to start leaving the only people who can paddle the boat. We're going to start losing them. I want, you all to, I want the older ones to realize that. This house is a safe haven. It's a wonderful place to come and experience the presence of God and be encouraged and uplifted and go back out in the world and do battle. But as a congregation, we have to find a way to move among drowning people or this congregation won't survive. I believe... This sounds really extreme, but I, I was overwhelmed by this revelation. I don't think Missionary Baptist as we know it will exist in 15 years. Period. They won't exist. There'll be the far extreme people out in the country who like to have their little summer revivals. And the rest of us who want to rescue drowning people are going to go somewhere else. If we don't go back out in the ocean. Not a threat. It's the future. And we need to be prepared. Let me say this before I close. There may be people here or listening to this message who <laughs> you've been listening and maybe you listen to my story about drowning and you almost drowning and you said, you know what, that's how my life feels. I know what that feels like. Every day I feel like I'm drowning. Every day I feel overwhelmed. Every day I feel like life is too much. If you feel that way, what it takes is for you to finally let go of paddling yourself above the waves of your own life and surrender to God. And He'll lift you up. He'll protect you. He'll save you. How do you do that? When you recognize that you're not safe, that your life is broken, that you're in turmoil and pain and there's things that you can't fix, when you recognize that and you begin to cry out to God and maybe you don't even know who He is or understand how prayer works, but there's something inside of you that says, I can't do this anymore. When you get to that point, He'll reach out and He'll rescue you. Oh, I could use religious words, but I don't think there's any reason to right now. You're drowning, you can be rescued. To the saved people. Oh man, I love y'all. I do. Not just this church, but God's people. I experience such a difference among the true people of God and the ones who are on speedboat religious churches. I didn't expand my analogy like I wanted to. This speedboat religion, they're running in and out of waves, doing exciting things. It's not what we need. We need stable <laughs> bedrock boats. And we went up to Indiana and saw that. Saw a service like that where God's people left aside every silly thing that doesn't matter and personality conflicts and all this and came together and they cared about one thing. Let's experience the presence of God. And we got to see a beautiful example of a young lady go up burdened, drowning in her sin, broken down to the altar, pop up a couple minutes later beaming with life and then immediately go down and pray for her drowning friend. I got out to that sandbar, and I still wasn't quite coherent, but uh, I saw Bobby <laughs> swimming in by himself, and I was worried about him. 
See, that's what happens when God rescues you from the drowning in your own life. You want to help others immediately. You might not be ready. You might need to sit on the boat a little longer. I really, I hope y'all are not discouraged by this. I hope you're encouraged. But whatever the outcome, I did my job today. I sounded the alarm. I tried to preach as clearly and as honestly and pure-hearted as I could. And I am going to rest in knowing that God can do with it whatever He chooses. God bless you.